Obviously, my, old, my oldest brother got the height and the hair. <laughs> but I think that's about it. <laughs> anyway, good morning. How are you? It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you, Dan, for the uh, introduction. I know him as Dan. Uh, if you know him, you probably know him as Curry. I didn't realize that was his name for years. <laughs> Daniel's his middle name, and we just always referred to him as Dan, so Curry is very strange to me. But anyways, regardless of what you call him, he's my oldest brother. Our other brother lives in Minneapolis. Uh, our sister lives outside of Pittsburgh near our folks. I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and I have since 2001. Uh, like my two older brothers, I went to Penn State University. And upon graduating in 2001, I immediately enrolled at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and I've been in St. Louis ever since. I've been married for about 16 years, almost, and my wife and I have four kids of our own. This is a little old. I've never been so tall. Uh, <laughs> this is fall of 17. London is 10 on the right. Penelope on the left is 8. Noble will be 6 on Friday, and then Magnolia is now 2.5. So that's, that's us. Uh, I pastor a church in St. Louis called City Church. We are a church in the city, and so we decided to name ourselves City Church. We are a Presbyterian church, and this coming Easter, we will celebrate our 10th anniversary. The whole thing started as an idea uh, really around 2007, uh, began to take shape in 2008, and then we launched on Easter Sunday 2009, and that's where I've been ever since, and Lord willing, it is where I will stay until I die. Uh, in 2014, we bought an old, beat-up, abandoned, almost, church uh, in one of the oldest neighborhoods in St. Louis City, a place called Lafayette Square. Our, our building was constructed in 1889, so there's a lot of work to be done, but we've had a fun time restoring it and renovating it. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a traveling preacher. I'm not well-known. I'm just somebody's brother, so... Uh, <laughs> This is a little strange, admittedly, but I'm happy to lend a hand, and I do understand that you are in the midst of a pastor search. I genuinely hope uh, the Lord blesses you with someone who possesses godly character, uh, formidable humility, a shepherd's heart, and a passion for the preached word. Uh, interestingly, uh, I came to find out this past year that we're kind of connected, aside from my brother. A gentleman attended City Church a while back for about six months. It ultimately proved to be too long of a drive for him. He lives in uh, Illinois. Uh, but he had been recommended uh, our church by a mutual friend of ours at seminary. And so he checked us out. He's a retired pastor out of the PCA. And his name is Paul Dixon. And I think his father, like, planted the first Grace Church right in D.C. And so we were having coffee one day. Uh, get to know one another and come to find out he grew up in southern Maryland and so long story short he taught Jeff Thornley your previous pastor at Crossland Senior High School in the 10th grade how, how small a world is that so that was fun to learn of anyway it's a it's an honor and privilege to to be given the opportunity to uh, open up the Bible and preach the word of God to you today I spoke with Dennis Fay on a phone a few weeks back, he informed me that here at Grace Church, historically, like several years ago, January was always stewardship month. 
Uh, Pastor Thornley would set aside the whole month of January to preach on financial stewardship, giving, generosity, tithing, kind of uh, all as means of discipleship, kind of how God grows us up in the gospel. And to that end, Dennis asked me if I'd be willing to preach on stewardship and giving today. I have no qualms about this. I'm happy to do it. Now, some pastors don't like to talk about money, and and I suppose I I can understand why. Uh, Sadly, there are uh, several examples of so-called Christian preachers and evangelists who exploit biblical teaching for profit by preying upon vulnerable and impressionable people. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It has no place in the true kingdom of God. Now, the vast majority of pastors aren't doing that. Even so, uh, in general, pastors tend to tiptoe around the topic of money. And this is likely because uh, many pastors in America shepherd congregations that are full of people who often confuse Christianity with the American dream. And whether it's a conscious thing or not, we often equate God's blessings with comfort, and for Americans, greater comfort is essentially code for wealth. Therefore, to preach about financial stewardship strikes uncomfortably close to one of our cultural golden calves, which is money. But the good news is there's nothing new under the sun, right? Love of money and material things has pretty much always been an area of temptation for people, regardless of their time and place in world history, Uh, just consider the biblical witness. Jesus said more about money than almost any other single topic. Therefore, it is imperative we listen. And whereas I only know about grace, church, partially through what my brother has told me, uh, if this is indeed a gospel-centered church, and my experience thus far has validated that, then it's probably safe to assume that the vision of grace, church, Uh, generally speaking, is to be a community of people in which the gospel is proclaimed, Uh, a place where the gospel would so shape this people that acts of justice would abound, that, that mercy would overflow, that repentance and forgiveness would be commonplace, that you would be a people characterized by joy and contentment, even in the midst of trial and hardship, that you would be fragrant with the aroma of Christ. In short, that you would be a gospel-saturated church. And one of the practical consequences of gospel saturation is generosity. God is a generous God. And human beings are made in God's image, what theologians call the imago dei, In the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, the account reads as follows, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women reflect divine personhood. This means that each human being possesses deep value and dignity simply based upon his or her authorship. We resemble our creator, and he designed us specifically so that in this world we inhabit, we might embody and exercise certain communicable attributes. 
for our good and for his glory. Just think about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We didn't make these up. These aren't human inventions. They didn't originate with us. No, they find their origin in the triune God and are imbued to us and in us by the Holy Spirit. And one of the divine attributes we are to reflect is generosity. God is incalculably generous, and as image bearers of this generous God, Christians are to reflect that generosity really in all of life. Uh, We are to be generous, generously give of ourselves, give of ourselves spiritually, give of ourselves emotionally, give of ourselves practically through acts of service. We are to be generous with kindness and encouragement and We are to be generous financially. Generosity means giving. And giving can be costly in more ways than one. As such, gospel-shaped generosity is a somewhat dangerous notion. Because God does not play on our terms, does he? Only on his own. Therefore, in a sense, he's not safe. At least not in the traditional sense of how we tend to think of safety. Perhaps you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous, most famous Narnia Chronicle, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was speaking with an elder between services, and he said that he has used this example before, so maybe it's familiar to you. But in that book, uh, you may recall, the children, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, they encounter Narnia through a wardrobe they find in their uncle's house. And the one boy, Edmund, becomes intrigued by the white witch and is sort of taken away on his own adventure. The other three, in searching for Edmund, they happen upon the house of the beavers. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are hospitable, but a bit wary. Uh, Even so, they agree to take the children to see the king, Aslan. Brief excerpt. "Is, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the nature of the one true God for whom we are gathered here this morning. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And when it comes to this topic of generosity, this dynamic of being not safe but good is is squarely at play. Uh, Perhaps I can illustrate this with a different story. I read an account of a woman uh, who came to faith through the gospel. She had begun attending a church that preached the the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it utterly captivated her. Soon after her conversion, she she sat down with the pastor and had had a conversation about the topic of grace, and this is what she said. 
grace is a scary idea. It's good scary, but still scary. And the pastor, intrigued by her response, asked her, well, what's so scary about unmerited free grace? And she replied, well, if I was saved by my good works, well, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. But if it really is true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost, there's nothing he can't ask of me. And that's a bit unsettling, right? I'll say it again. Generosity is a dangerous notion in the gospel. God's generous grace at the unfathomable cost of his own crucified son means that his claim on the life of Christians is all-encompassing. Now, there's nothing he can't ask of the one for whom he paid such a high cost to save. God's gift of salvation through unmerited free grace means that Christians are gloriously and interminably indebted to him, not compelled by guilt, but captured by grace. And because we bear his image, generosity is actually part of our original makeup. Right? In terms of the created order, generosity came before our own selfishness. So moving toward generosity is actually a recovery of something lost rather than a fashioning of something new. And this is the start of Christian generosity. It's, it's not rooted in God's unbending law. It's rooted in God's unblemished character. Therefore, for those who have been saved by Christ, generosity is a joy-filled response, not a, not a dutiful obligation. Generosity is compelled by beauty, not, not burden. And so we see this in the text at which we are looking this morning. Let's go ahead and read that passage now. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9, page 967 in the Bibles provided. If you would turn there now, uh, 2 Corinthians, New Testament, after Romans and 1 Corinthians. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. I'm going to pray before going any further. We need God's help. We need his spirit as we do this. And so uh, you're welcome to join me as I do. Heavenly Father, uh, I, I stand here really on, on no merit of my own. I don't have equity with these people, Lord, but your word does and you do. And so we do pray that, Jesus, by your spirit, you would speak to us, that you would confront us in our 
sin uh, graciously, gently, but Lord, confront us nonetheless. Draw us into this beautiful truth. Lord, we're grateful that you don't hide hard truths from us. You invite us in to consider, to reflect. You work on us in your own perfect timing. Lord, do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at three things in this passage. Uh, In a way, these three things constitute the nature of gospel generosity. Our outline is as follows. Generosity irrespective of circumstance. uh, Generosity integral to worship and generosity indicative of salvation. So first let's consider generosity irrespective of circumstance. The Christians in Jerusalem were suffering severe persecution. And so a collection was being taken up to help. Here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Christians in Corinth. In doing so, he references the Macedonian Christians as an example of generosity, an example to which the Corinthians were to aspire Uh, Notice how Paul describes the context of their generosity, verse 2. He said that it arose from the combination of three things. A severe test of affliction, an abundance of joy, and extreme poverty. Okay, this doesn't really add up. doesn't really compute uh, to our sensibilities and experience. Uh, But this is the upside-down nature of gospel math, essentially. Affliction plus joy plus poverty equals wealth. Not, not wealth in terms of a financial ledger, but, but rich in joy and possessing a treasure of generosity with which to bless others. Paul understood that God's grace neither lightened the Macedonians' affliction nor removed their poverty. Instead, it opened their hearts to joy-filled generosity. They were motivated to give with little to no consideration of their own circumstance. This is the first principle regarding gospel-driven generosity. If you've ever had the opportunity to travel to a third-world country, particularly for the purpose of some kind of ministry or humanitarian mission, undoubtedly you know what it's like to be shown lavish grace and extravagant hospitality from people who have next to nothing. Clearly, Their generosity has nothing to do with their circumstances, right? And this is how the Macedonians were, and Paul is telling the Corinthians, and us by extension, that this is how all Christians should be. Why? Well, because Christian generosity is a reflection, not of how much we have or are able to give, but of God's immeasurable goodness to us in Christ, full stop. 1 John uh, 4.19, we love because God first loved us, right? That's how it works, indicative first, imperative second. We love because Christ first loved us. We give because we have received so abundantly from him. The, The Macedonians gave according to their means, and what is more, Paul says, they gave beyond their means of their own accord. No one was demanding that they do this. Now, they weren't being strong-armed or compelled by guilt. No, verse 4 says that they earnestly begged for the opportunity to participate in the lessening of uh, the burdens of others, even though their own burden was so great. That is gospel transformation. That is generosity irrespective of circumstance. The incomparable Congregationalist Jonathan Edwards reasoned as follows. 
In many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. We should be willing to suffer with our neighbor and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Otherwise, how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? It seems logical enough. When we only offer to help when we're in a comfortable position to do so, we're not actually sharing the burden, are we? Really, we're just giving out of our abundance, which by itself is not a bad thing. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, it's just not burden sharing, right? It's not sacrificial in the biblical sense of the word. But when the gospel truly captivates your heart, a natural byproduct is a willingness to sacrifice, to feel and essentially take on someone else's pain. We are to sacrifice for the greater good. We are to be burdened for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the mission. Generosity doesn't originate out of duty and obligation. It's not dictated by how much we have or how much is left over after all the bills are paid and the discretionary expenditures are made. No, it's a first fruits kind of investment. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 states, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. In other words, we are to give God the cream of the crop, the cut off the top, the choicest of our work and offering, the first fruits, regardless of circumstance. Secondly, gospel-driven generosity is integral to worship. Still referring to the Macedonians, Paul says, verse 5, that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And what this means is that they devoted themselves to God above all. The Macedonians leaned heavily into God by faith and by doing so committed themselves to the gospel cause, as it were. Paul says that this was not as we expected, essentially. This is a welcome surprise, this above and beyond uh, kind of willingness on their end. And what this teaches us is that gospel-driven generosity arises out of worship, right? It's a product of worship. Since worship is not simply what we do on Sunday mornings, but an all-of-life sort of thing, uh, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to carry this worshipful experience into everything, verse 7. Right? You see, they excelled at many things, and Paul lists them there, but he exhorted them to follow the example of the Macedonians and excel in generosity as well. Now, this is not a profound principle. It's really, it's really quite simple. You see, we worship, or worship, what we worship shapes us. What we worship shapes us. Uh, if you bow down at the altar of money, for instance, uh, your life and your priorities, your habits, your behaviors will be shaped and fashioned by that idolatry. Uh, making more money, investing that money, spending that money, saving that money, whatever it may be. If you kneel before the God of body image, your life and your priorities will be shaped by exercise and diet and fashion and an intoxicating preoccupation with your own image, your own reflection. If you idolize others' opinions of you, then you'll be obsessed uh, with you know, curating your own social media profile and making sure you're in the know and up to speed on all the new cultural trends. You get the idea. Uh, what you worship shapes you. Career, family, 
whatever. In his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith writes, the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up uh, through the formation of our habits of desire. Uh, Learning to love God takes practice. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Therefore, the more you give yourself to this generous God, the more you worship this generous God, the more generous you will become. That's how that works. And interestingly, it's not just a one-way street. It kind of works uh, on multiple levels. Yes, the more you worship, the more generous you'll find yourself inclined to be. But also, uh, the more you end up giving, the more worshipful uh, you will find yourself being. Kind of a twofer. Uh, Gospel generosity is integral to worship. Our third and final point, uh, generosity indicative of salvation. Uh, Let's reread 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul is saying, listen, you cannot mandate generosity, right? Just like you can't legislate morality, you cannot mandate generosity. It's a heart issue. To command giving goes against the very nature of grace. Uh, Giving is not a rule, but a response. Uh, Verse 8, I say this not as a command, uh, Paul says, but to prove that your love is genuine. In other words, expressing love through generosity essentially validates Your faith, it points to the fact that you've been saved. Believing the gospel and being generous go hand in hand. Can't have one without the other, effectively. Uh, Paul does not want the Corinthians to to give because of some external coercion of the law, uh, but because of an internal compulsion of the heart. Earlier I mentioned the experience of, of a mission trip to a third world country in which you encounter the unbridled generosity of those who have next to nothing. Uh, Here in the States, you know, it's almost the opposite. Uh, Obviously, there are exceptions, but in general, we we tend to cling to our stuff with a a fierce possessiveness, right? We we buy and we accumulate and we measure ourselves against uh, everyone else uh, by the quality and quantity of our material possessions. It's almost unheard of that someone would actually willingly impoverish himself or herself for the benefit of of another. But verse 9 says it all, speaking of Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, to be clear, and this is an important point, the particular impoverishment that Paul refers to here has everything to do with spiritual divestment, the, the divestment of spiritual riches, not financial. Uh, but the principle is absolutely identical. Lest we think somehow that it was easier for Jesus to uh, give away spiritual riches than it is for us to give away our money, uh, just consider what the Son willingly relinquished when he put on flesh and dwelt among us. We can't fathom the radiant goodness and infinite glory of God the Father uh, that Jesus enjoyed prior to the incarnation, but he gave it up. In Philippians 2, Paul describes Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of 
men, talk about radical generosity, emptied himself, the son. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, uh, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The, The Christian life is a response to God's grace. The whole thing. It's all a response out of gratitude. It's not duty. We don't give because it's an obligation. We give because it's an honor. It's a privilege. Being generous proves we've tasted grace. Salvation manifests itself in generous living. And there's really so much more that could be said, uh, not only on this passage, but certainly about the topic of, of generosity in general. I've merely scratched the surface, but I hope in doing so uh, that these principles of generosity have begun to take on an added weight of significance in your minds and hearts. Namely, the reality that gospel-driven generosity is really irrespective of our circumstances, that it is integral to worship, and that it is indicative of salvation. Now, this all begs the question, uh, what, 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 what might this look like practically? Uh, what are the nuts and bolts of living generously in the church. Well, the Bible talks about a tithe. And uh, the word tithe means a tenth or a portion. Uh, Giving God a tenth of all we own has deep biblical historical roots. Way back in Genesis 14, we see Abraham practicing a tithe, giving God the first fruits of his harvest and of his material wealth. Fast forward a little bit to the book of Leviticus, when form and structure are provided by God to govern the worship of the people, they are explicitly directed to set aside a tenth of their income and to devote it to the work of the temple. In other words, uh, the people of God were to give sacrificially in order to fund the ministry of the priests, the, the worship and mission of the temple, and such a practice was carried along into Jesus' day, millennia. The tithe is a thoroughly biblical practice, but it was never meant to simply be a checkbox of religious duty, right? Did that, you know, what's next? It was always meant to be a matter of the heart in worship. Now, some Christians approach the tithe quite mechanically. You know, they give 10% down to the penny, and that's fine. Uh, That's not necessarily wrong. I'm not here to dictate any laws to you. Uh, Indeed, the passage we read this morning, Paul says, I'm not commanding you uh, to give money. I'm asking you, Uh, out of a heart of gratitude for the grace you've been shown in Christ. And whereas giving a financial tithe is, I would think, thoroughly biblical, has a strong biblical argument, how much that tithe amounts to is really nowhere specifically mandated. A tenth is a starting point of consideration, certainly not a rule or a law. Uh, However, one thing is clear, I think, from the Bible. Uh, Giving generously should be a bit uncomfortable. Right? Recall Jonathan Edwards, how are we to bear each other's burdens without actually burdening ourselves? Along the same exact lines, King David, 2 Samuel 24, 24, he refused to offer to God that which cost him nothing. So the tithe should sting a bit, 
but that thing's going to look different for everybody. It might look like 6% of one's income in this particular season of life. It might look like 14% of income for another uh, person or couple. You know, it's going to be different. Again, it's not about the percentage. It's about the heart behind the giving. That seems to be the tenor of Scripture on the matter. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives not out of reluctance or compulsion, right? Uh, reluctance is, a, is an internal posture, compulsion, an external force. Not out of that, but as a, a heart that's happy to give, a heart that knows how generously it has already tasted of God's grace. This isn't easy. As I stated earlier, generosity is a dangerous notion. But the effect is to grow us internally, right? That's the point, to give away that which seeks to own you, to willingly relinquish that which would otherwise ensnare you. And as we give away our money, we declare that our trust is in God's provision alone, his daily bread, not our bank account, not our investment portfolio, not our house, not our, you know, fill in the blank. Now, some Christians are very generous with their time, some of you know all about that. Others are very generous with their talent. Some of you know about that. Some of you are both, you know, time and talent generous. Uh, and make no mistake about it, these are good things that, that bring glory to God, but they don't count toward your tithe uh, because the tithe is, is explicitly financial in nature. In other words, you can't tithe your time or your talents. You can give those things generously as acts of worshipful service, and praise be to God if you do, but neither of them constitute a tithe, at least not biblically. I don't know how you all approach giving here administratively speaking, but at City Church, we ask our folks to make an annual financial commitment in writing a year in advance. And I was talking to my brother, he seemed to indicate that something similar maybe happens here. Uh, our fiscal year aligns with the calendar year. And so each December, our folks submit their pledge. They submit, uh, they communicate to us what they plan to, seek to, aspire to give in the coming year. And they inform our accountants, okay, none of the pastoral staff ever know the giving amounts. That's not appropriate. It's all done confidentially. Our accountant is a, is a subcontractor who doesn't even attend our church. So it's all handled kind of there. But one of the primary reasons we institute an annual financial commitment is so that we can seek to be faithful stewards of that with which God has blessed us, both personally and corporately as the church. And this is, a mutually, this is mutually beneficial in all sorts of ways. And not only does strategic planning help our people to adjust and manage their own personal budgets and provide shape to their financial house for the coming year, it also helps the church plan responsibly for future ministry. You know, we have a budget to manage just like you, and I don't think it would be all that wise for us to just go into the next year kind of crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. No, we have to be wise and responsible. Now listen, random acts of generosity are great, okay? Spontaneous giving can be a real blessing, but the regular planned, intentional discipline of giving is, is where the action is. The regular, intentional, planned discipline of giving is what is going to enable Grace Church to be effective for years and generations to come because the regular, planned, intentional discipline of giving is really where the discomfort of generosity is most often felt. Ergo, 
where sanctification most most often happens. Again, because Jesus warned against the temptations and pitfalls surrounding greed and money more than almost any other single subject, we can rest assured that part of the practical benefit of the tithe is for Christians to cultivate the discipline of handing over to God that which would otherwise ensnare them. It's for our benefit and maturation. We give out of delight, not duty. Why? Well, because we are image bearers. And as image bearers of a generous God, we are called to be generous people in response to the lavish love and grace that we've been shown in Jesus. It is an act of worship, and so we trust Jesus. He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to to be made uncomfortable in your grace. Thank you that it's uh, appropriately convicting and challenging for us to consider how this may affect us. Lord, guide us. Holy Spirit, uh, teach us, shape us. Mold our hearts, help us, give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty and goodness of your truth. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.